Good morning, dear saints, and blessed epiphany, and welcome to Thy Strong Word. Today is Monday, January 29th, and you're listening to the program where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Today we continue our study of Lamentations with Chapter 2, which itself continues to paint a vivid and somber picture of Jerusalem's desolation following its destruction. In this second of five poems of lament, the imagery is stark and powerful, depicting the Lord in his anger, darkening the daughter of Zion's splendor, and casting down from heaven to earth the majesty of Israel. The chapter serves not only as a historical recount of sorrow and devastation, but also as a profound meditation on the nature of suffering, divine justice, and the consequences of turning away from spiritual responsibilities. Folks, whether it's over the air, online at kfuo.org, or as a podcast, no matter how you're joining us this morning, thank you for tuning in. You are the reason we are here. So settle in, open your hearts and your minds. We're about to begin. Thy Strong Word is graciously supported by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. LHF translates, publishes, and distributes books that are Bible-based, Christ-centered, and Reformation-driven. So when you get a moment, head online to lhfmissions.org to learn more. And if you have a question or comment about today's show or you just want to say hi, you know how to do it. Email me at pastorboo at gmail.com or find me on Facebook. Just search for Phil Boo. Send me a friend request. Um, or you can also, when we're live, call in. But today we're pre-recorded, so keep that in mind. Now, joining us this morning, it's the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Good morning, Pastor Crown, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo and the saints in Christ Jesus. We're so glad to have you here. My voice is still a little under the weather at the time that we're recording this, but uh, hopefully it's coming through okay. I, you know, we are just into Lamentations. Here we are, the second chapter Lamentations, I think, is a book that I don't know if a lot of Christians really have read or or even kind of know what it's about. I mean, we, we think of, uh, you know, Lamentations of the Bible and people just assume it's going to be all this negative stuff. Uh, what's your experience with Lamentations? Have, have you taught this in the parish? Do, do you use it in sermons? What are your thoughts? The typical time it comes up would be for, for funerals. Lamentations chapter 3 is often a favorite Old Testament text for me for preaching, for funerals. And it does make an appearance in our Good Friday liturgy. We use Traore, a 12 till 3 service, and portions of Lamentations are read during part 4, uh, which corresponds to Eli, Eli, Lamak, Sabachthani in right, the Lord's right. last words. So it does make an appearance, but as you said, not all that often. Yeah, and, but it, you know, it's also fascinating though, because in a world where a lot of people, especially those who are outside the faith, criticize God or our belief in God in a world where bad things happen, that's pretty much exactly what Lamentations is addressing in this poetic way. I mean, these five poems, they're all acrostics. They uh, lament, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem or, you know, the impending, but it, it, but it also, as I, as I mentioned at the top of the show already, it really gives us a chance to give voice to what it's like to 
frankly, complain to God about the bad things that happen and, and realize his sovereignty. Yes, I, I do believe that there's a, a real challenge for, for Christians because we're not, I was not taught growing up how to express, if you will, lamenting toward God, expressing some anger in a way toward God. Why do these things happen? How to express that? We had the response of God is disciplining. Uh, God will bring about the not yet. But the, the present circumstance of how to lament, I think I need to teach more often in the congregation. I mean, me too. One of the things that I often tell people when they're going through some terrible time is, and, and they find themselves with feelings toward God that they're ashamed of. You know, they're, they're angry. They're, 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 they're upset. They're, they're disappointed that things have worked out the way they have been. And I let them know that at least in the short term, for sure, it's okay to be mad at God, right? I mean, he's your father. He, he loves you so much. He allows you to be mad at him. I mean, in fact, that's a position of faith because when you're upset with God because of something that happens, it really is revealing that you at least believe that God is in control. Now, now hopefully clarity comes in time and you understand uh, God's will for you. But in the moment, yeah, I mean, be mad at God. He, he loves you that much. Yes, we often hear the Romans chapter 8 passage, all things work for good. And we almost tend to superficially or ease over the suffering, the lament, the cry of anguish, the despair. And we just look ahead to, if you will, that silver lining, which is not actually a silver lining, but to express it in a secular way. Right, exactly, exactly. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we uh, get into our text, but before we do that, it'd be a good idea to start our time together in prayer. So, brother, if you'd lead us in that. Yes, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Gracious Father, you have named us your own in holy baptism. You have set the name upon us, the name of your Son, Christ Jesus, and sealed us with your Holy Spirit. We are therefore convinced that by your grace, by the glory of your grace, you have named us as your own and given us an inheritance that cannot spoil, perish, or fade, one which is lively in your Son, Christ Jesus. So during the difficult and anguished times of this life, turn us to your Son, Christ Jesus. You have given us life, raised us, and set us already in the heavenly realms with him. Now, therefore, grant us, Father, your Holy Spirit, to understand and meditate upon these words, that our faith may mature, bearing faith towards you, and also bearing that which is profitable and beneficial for our neighbors. Hear us, Father, for the sake of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. 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 So this second lament that we're focusing on today is really about the great suffering that uh, Zion felt or that was inflicted upon Zion when God, when Yahweh, became like an enemy, as we'll see in the fifth verse. So we have this idea of God's divine justice unleashed against his people, but is it warranted? Does the writer understand that it's warranted or, or justified? That's the kind of stuff we're going to look into. I tell you what, we're going to go ahead and read just the first chunk of it, verses 1 through 9, to get us started. How the Lord in his anger has set the daughter of Zion under a cloud. He has cast down from heaven to earth the splendor of Israel. He has not remembered his footstool in the day of his anger. 
the Lord has swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants or habitations, pardon me, of Jacob. In his wrath, he has broken down the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He has brought down to the ground in dishonor the kingdom and its rulers. He has cut down in fierce anger all the might of Israel. He has withdrawn from them his right hand in the face of the enemy. He has burned like a flaming fire in Jacob, consuming all around. He has bent his bow like an enemy, and with his right hand set like a foe, he has killed all who were delightful in our eyes. In the tent of the daughter of Zion, he has poured out his fury like fire. The Lord has become like an enemy. He has swallowed up Israel. He has swallowed up all of its palaces. He has laid in ruins its strongholds, and he has multiplied in the daughter of Judah, mourning and lamentation. He has laid waste his booth like a garden, laid in ruins his meeting place. Yahweh has made Zion forget festival and Sabbath, and in his fierce indignation has spurred, spurned king and priest. The Lord has scorned his altar, disowned his sanctuary. He has delivered into the hands of the enemy the walls of her palaces. They raised a clamor in the house of Yahweh, as on the day of festival. Yahweh determined to lay in ruins the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out the measuring line. He did not restrain his hand from destroying. He caused rampart and wall to lament. They languished together. Her gates have sunk into the ground. He has ruined and broken her bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. And her prophets find no vision from Yahweh. Okay, so we're, you know, nine verses in, so that means we're also nine letters of the Hebrew alphabet in, in the way that these uh, poems are written. Um, I guess start to unpack this for us. I mean, it begins literally with the Lord in his anger. Yes, there is a definite shift from chapter one to chapter two. Chapter two focuses upon Yahweh himself doing this. And it's an interesting observation that it isn't simply Yahweh used, it's also Adonai. As you mentioned mm. earlier, the sovereignty, the power of God is being exercised, his mastery over all things, of controlling the Babylonian army, watching over Jerusalem's walls, the gates, the armies of Israel. It's all under the Lord's all-pervading power. Now, that by itself doesn't seem very comforting that the Lord is exercising his power over Israel. And you see that here, and that's the great distress what we saw in chapter 1. But here the focus is on the intentionality. If you look at the verses all the way through the chapter, they almost always begin with he, that is, God is doing these things. That's especially evident in these first nine verses. Uh, the Lord has intentionality purpose for this destruction. Right. And, and, you know, I'm going right now through, uh, at my own parish, I'm going through Proverbs with my parishioners. And of course, right at the top of Proverbs, it talks about the fear of the Lord being the beginning of wisdom. And I only bring that up because, you know, I, I have always grown up hearing that you know, the fear of the Lord is really nothing more than just, oh, respecting him or awe. And I, I do believe that that's true. But we see here when as, as they're lamenting on the fear that they're experiencing because of what the Lord, both Adonai, as you pointed out, Adonai, when I said Lord, or Yahweh, when I said Yahweh, 
you know, they, they, they talk about this, this ruling uh, uh, sovereign God who is, I guess, expressing his wrath upon them. I think that is a different kind of fear than just awe and respect, but I, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is I feel like when we talk about fear of the Lord, we've domesticated God so much that it really doesn't mean anything. How would you tie in, if you would, the fear of the Lord with this you know, expression of God's wrath so far? Yes, I think this is more than, if you will, fear. This is absolute terror that the God who has made heaven and earth has also now dissolved the boundaries for his own people. You might have seen this with the Philistines or the Egyptians or the Babylonians, how he destroys walls. The Gentiles, yes, you would expect that. But now those terrors are at your doorstep. And all that you feared, the chaos that God, if you will, conquered in Genesis 1, is now with us. And that's absolute distress. All the light, all the order, all the life, the the ruling of God by Genesis chapter 2 has now dissipated, evaporated, intentionally gone away. And you, I don't think you can say simply fear. You must say distress and terror and horror because of the, what would you say, anti-creation happening, anti-garden, anti-man mm. almost. Yes. Well, and, and, I'm, and I'm looking at the language that's being used here, and they're describing God as like, not as an enemy, but like an enemy, like a foe. Uh, chapter, I'm sorry, verse four, he has bent his bow like an enemy with his right hand set like a foe. Um, so when I think about, well, what does, what makes us enemies of God, right? So through Christ, through our baptisms, we've been given faith. We've been uh, saved from the destruction that's going to be coming upon us. We're brought into the kingdom. God now is our heavenly father. But at the same time, you can even set yourself up against your own father as an enemy. And we do that whenever we disobey his will, whenever we refuse to repent, whenever we despise his uh, word and sacrament. There's so many things that we do as enemies of God, even while we're in his own household. So I think part of this whole idea, and in fact, what's getting across here, the reason why this is being shared with us is that because we still have that temptation to fall back into being enemies of God. That doesn't mean that's what he desires. But here we have language of in the day of his anger. Now, that's way back in verse 1, but that's talking about the day of the Lord, the day of Yahweh, that the day that the prophets warned Israel about when Yahweh would come to judge. So I, I don't know. I, I just feel like they, they in these laments express a, a righteous fear, terror of what God can do. And at no point are we going to hear, at least I don't believe so, them trying to deny that they deserve it, if that makes sense. And, and I think we've lost that. Sometimes we just think that we just deserve all of God's love. And we've taken for granted what, he, what the uh, immeasurable uh, and, and, and almost incomprehensible uh, uh, grace that he has shown us through Jesus. Yeah, I think that somewhat goes hand in hand with the, the general American situation, the U.S. situation of unrivaled prosperity and general civil peace that we've enjoyed for 160 years. 
We've not had the destruction and terrors that many other countries have had or societies. And now we sort of just expect it to happen. And how present generations may think that we're not doing as well as our parents, what's gone wrong. Uh, and not understanding that God uses such events or brings about such events. I think that the whole idea in verse 1, um, the Lord has covered uh, his daughter, uh, daughter Zion, with his anger. If you, we, we return to Exodus chapter 40, where the cloud of the presence came upon the tabernacle for a sign of God's presence. Here now, it is, as you said, the day of his anger, the day of his wrath. And verse 1 ends in the same way, mm-hmm. that his presence has now uh, turned from one which looks upon Israel a benediction to one which did, has turned away and therefore allows Israel to be destroyed. Uh, the expectations that they had as God's people, uh, as if they had no responsibility, as if as if Adam had gone into the garden in Genesis 2 and said, I'm in the garden, I don't have to pick up my rake or my hoe, I don't have to prune, I'll just uh, ignore that I've been created in the image of God, denying the, the, the life of the Spirit that God breathed, in, breathed into him. I think that's what's happening here. Oh, yeah. I mean, they're seeing what they considered impossible to ever not be there. Okay, That's a little convoluted. But I guess, you know, this is such yeah. an institution. You know, they remember from from history, we know from Chronicles that God has said, you know, this is my dwelling place. They, they mentioned this is my the footstool for God. Right? This is this is where God stands upon the earth, even though he's also in his heavenly heights. And, and they say he's not remembered his footstool. Right. And I don't think this is like he's forgotten by accident. I think it's more of a more of a he's he's ignoring his footstool. Uh, verse two, the Lord has swallowed up without mercy the inhabitants of Zion in his wrath. So they see the destruction and they attribute it to God, which I like, as I said before, I think is righteous. Right. Because God's in control. But they're describing it in terms of all the things that God has promised them if they would keep his law. Um, he's now not upholding, but of course the unstated thing is why is he not remembering his footstool? Why is he not showing them mercy? Why is he displaying wrath against his own? Well, uh, go ahead. Tell us. Yeah. Well, they, they brought the boundaries. They were given responsibility, identified, given the status as children. And they're the ones who broke down the doors from the inside as it were. And having broken down the doors, they allowed the rush of sin to come upon them, the consequences. God had built a wall around them, and they decided to break down the walls from the inside, not understanding the consequences of taking away God's safety and promise. It reminds me of the Matthew 10, uh, Matthew 10, where don't fear men who can kill a body, but rather fear God, who can put both body and soul in hell. And uh, in Luke 19, the same sort of issue is happening. Jesus is weeping because the people have rejected the gospel, God's own presence among his people. And if you take away God's presence, his life, well, the only thing left for is a void, if you will, and the void is death and destruction, chaos, and everything contrary to, I guess what we'd say, the the Articles of the Apostles' Creed. 
you have an anti-creed almost. No, and that, I think that makes a lot of sense. I mean, and, and this is where the why I brought up fear too, because I think part of the reason why children obey their parents or citizens obey their government isn't always just out of altruism within deep in their hearts. It's because of the fear of reprisal, the fear of punishment. That remains even after God has chosen his people, there's still discipline. And, and that discipline remains for us. Now, we could call it punishment because that's certainly what it feels like in the moment. And, and that's what I'm hearing uh, poured out upon these pages is this is not like, oh, thank you, Lord, because we're going to really learn our lesson. Or at this point in the, in the poem, it's very much, you know, we are being uh, very strictly punished. I think that's the feeling. And that's important for us to remember, too, that in the moments where God is disciplining us or he's allowing bad things to happen in our lives, it can feel like punishment and can lead us to despair. But despair is not going to be the point of, of lamentations. Yes, I, I think that this is the, the challenge for Jeremiah and his contemporaries. And also for us is that this is not simply a permissive will, that God allows this to happen. He's the one who has strung the bow. He's the one who has aimed the arrow. He's the one who has let it fly. This is intentional aiming for the life of the people. He's going to kill them in order to show how his promise then can make people alive. Not unlike chopping down the tree of Jesse so that there's a sapling that comes forth. Uh, it's a real challenge when the arrow has struck you and you're wondering, God has done this to me. And I think that's the initial point. It's difficult to look beyond how God will repair you, restore you by grace when you've just been killed. Yeah, I think a lot about, you know, the boot camps or, or other things, you know, trials that people endure because when they come out on the other side, they emerge stronger and wiser. And I certainly see that's what's happening. Now, on the ground, though, we're not just dealing with sort of philosophical struggles. I mean, these people, their they're, they're compatriots are being killed by foreign forces, their temples destroyed, their livelihoods uprooted. I mean, this is in Job. We think of Job being so horrible, but that only happened to one person. This is happening to the whole nation. So, so what, how to respond to, say, atheists who, who look at these and, of course, believe not a word of them, but say, okay, well, that's just an example of how your so-called God is really a, uh, a mean, vindictive God who's emotionally manipulating his people into his will. Or even the Gnostic idea of, of you know, well, uh, or sorry, the Marcionic idea that, well, this is the, the bad God. And then, of course, in the New Testament comes the, the nice God. How do we respond to those people when we read texts like this or others that are even more inflammatory in the scriptures and we say, uh, or it says that, you know, God is disciplining his people in these ways. How do we respond? I think that we can respond with an argument from the lesser to the greater. That is, people who are, we can say, generally law-abiding, understand that sometimes the use of force is necessary, even an extreme use of force. I think one example might be the hope that capital punishment would put the fear of God in people, or that 
the reprisal of the U.S. military in certain limited circumstances would cause people to uh, rethink their choices, such as what's happening in the Red Sea. If we unleash a few bombs, maybe then things will change. So we can go from there how people typically think and say, if it's true for this circumstance, is it not true then for one who is in um, absolutely wise and faithful? Is it not possible for someone to think purely and justly about the use of force and use it in a way that men cannot? Uh, so why would we have to impose the the limits and un- injustice of men upon upon God? So if we if we can aim for justice, mm. is it not possible that justice actually occurs and exists? And this would be the example of that lamentations. So that's I, one way I would approach it. No, and I think that's fantastic. And and of course, those who have faith, trust, and hope in God also recognize that. God is able to exercise this judgment, this justice, even when it's, uh, you know, a capital offense, so to speak. He can do it completely without sin. So even those who might oppose uh, human beings to engage in that, maybe they have a point in terms of our, our the sin tainting our judgment. Um, but at the same time, God, now you, you can't you can't impugn his judgment, you know. So when it says things like, her gates have sunk into the ground. He's ruined and broken the bars. Her king and princes are among the nations. The law is no more. Her prophets find no vision from Yahweh, which is how our section ended. You know, the Lord is rejecting his altar, it says in verse 9. These verses show that the people he called princes are no more. The law he gave. The prophets, those who receive words from the Lord, no longer do it. These are all within the domain of God. I mean, he's he's not taking away from them anything he did not give them. And that's an important observation. Right? This is has this has all been gift to Israel. Uh, whether you go back to Abram or Israel coming out of Egypt, it's all been gift. So there can be no uh idea from Israel that we have deserved this city, we have deserved this kind of protection. Uh, The Lord bestows grace and mercy as he sees fit. And he's demonstrating that to the nations. The Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away, recalling Job. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Right. And blessed be the name of the Lord, the most important part. Now, um, we're getting ready to head to break, but, you know, we've just, we've kind of gone through these first nine verses. Now, we could take apart every single reference and, you know, it, it, every go back to Chronicles and uh, Kings, Second Kings and Jeremiah. Uh, you know, we just don't really have a lot of time to do that in the context of our show. But is there anything else about this first part that you want the people to know before we take a break and come back and keep on going? Yes, it is the Lord who has done what people feared most from other nations the Babylonians could have come in and destroyed the temple, but this is God himself destroying the link between heaven and earth. And that's why verse and verse 9 ends the way it does. The law, no more instruction, no vision, no hope of hearing anything from God. It's quiet. It's good Friday afternoon. Darkness and silence. 
Right. And, and just for clarity, we're not talking like a situation where it's lawlessness that God is uh, allowing to rule. He's just saying now, because of what's happening, you don't have access to the law. So for those who think that the law is all bad, like today, some people think that the law of God is not good, that we shouldn't understand third uses of the law and that sort of thing. You know, this is something to lament no more law. It's not a it's not a good thing that God's priestly teaching and instruction is no longer there. The law is no more uh, is more of a consequence of their behavior more than God saying, okay, well, lawlessness can reign, right? I, right. I, at least well, I just want yeah. Yeah, the kings and princes and prophets who are, who are charged with instructing, handing the word down from generation to generation are no more. So there can be no more instruction. If you have no teachers, there can be no teaching. That's devastating. This seems, well, this seems like a good place to take a pause, so I think we will. So, hey, folks, don't go anywhere. Just a few moments when we come back, Pastor Crown and I will keep on going with our discussion of Lamentations Chapter 2. We'll see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today, it's the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Don't forget, folks, that you can contact me at pastorboo at gmail.com or on Facebook with your questions and comments and more. All right, so getting back, not quite to the text. I actually want to take a break in the text just a little bit. Now, you're out there in Palo Alto, California. We talked about this a little bit last time. First of all, being from southwestern Minnesota right now, at least, how's the weather out there in California? Well, I find it beautiful. I enjoy the cooler weather, meaning the upper 40s and mid 50s during the day. But I will say I'm from southeast Wisconsin. And oh, you know it then. <laughs> I, I do know what the bitter temperatures are like. And there's a, a distant fondness for the winter, a distant fondness. Interesting, interesting. Well, as you know, we're in the negatives now, which is not not atypical, but it seems like even those people who are lifelong Minnesotans or Midwesterners or Wisconsinites, they uh, they tend to forget every year that this is a region that gets bitterly cold. Uh, but uh, I just when I talk to folks from California and Florida and Texas, I, I got to say, in the winter, I get a little envious of you guys' great weather. If it was fifty degrees here, people would be out in short leave short sleeve shirts and enjoying the sun. Hopefully you guys are doing that too. Well, we're looking ahead to more rain, which is oh. excellent for us. Well, that's good. That's good. Well, I'll tell you what, why don't we head back into the text? Um, well, I'm going to go ahead and read verses 10 through 19. Here we go. The elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence. They have thrown dust on their heads and put on sackcloth. The young women of Jerusalem have bowed their heads to the ground. My eyes are spent with weeping. 
My stomach churns. My bile is poured out to the ground because of the destruction of the daughter of my people, because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city. They cry to their mothers, where is bread and wine? As they faint like a wounded man in the streets of the city, as their life is poured out on their mother's bosom. What can I say for you? To what compare you, O daughter of Zion, or Jerusalem? What can I liken to you that I may comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Your prophets have seen you for, sorry, pardon me. Your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They have not exposed your iniquity to restore your fortunes, but have seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss, they wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this the city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of all the earth? All your enemies rail against you. They hiss, they gnash their teeth, they cry. We have swallowed her. Ah, oh, this is the day we long for. Now we have seen it, we see it. The Lord, Yahweh, has done what he purposed. He has carried out his word, which he commanded long ago. He has thrown down without pity. He has made the enemy rejoice over you and exalted the might of your foes. Their heart cried to the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion, let tears stream down like a torrent day and night. Give yourself no rest, your eyes no respite. Arise, cry out in the night. At the beginning of the night watches, pour out your heart like water before the presence of the Lord. Lift your hands to him for the lives of your children who faint for hunger at the head of every street. All right, we're going to pause there. So it gets, frankly, a little darker. You know, it, it starts to talk about some of the very personal experiences, and it's using imagery of infants and children and women now. Uh, yeah, it, it, it gets worse before it gets better. Starting back at verse 10, um, the elders of the daughter of Zion sit on the ground in silence, and the young women have bowed their heads to the ground. What's going on? So, Earlier in the chapter, we saw the destruction of the city, and now we have the response of the people, not so much a focus on the people themselves, but rather on the consequence of the destruction on the people, how they are mourning. And in particular, as you mentioned, it becomes quite grim that there is no next generation. Women, children are dying, and if the children die, is there a possibility of having a Jerusalem ever again? The life has just been sucked out of Jerusalem intentionally. Is there a possible, using this word intentionally, a resurrection in the future? Yeah, we I think, think that's it... where Jeremiah, Jeremiah leaves. Yeah, I'm just reflecting on even your use of terminology there, which you say is intentional and, and for good reason. I I think of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and, and then we learn from Hebrews that he does it in the full knowledge that it's through this son who, who the future salvation will come, but he just reasons that God will raise him from the dead somehow. And mm -hmm. we get that same sense here that, that all hope, if you were just looking at things in human terms, all hope is lost. The oh, next yeah, generations yeah. are gone. There's no but consolation the, here. Is there? Right, exactly. No consolation. No. Uh, there is 
no hope that the lament would actually end. Uh, who can heal you? If, if Yahweh is the enemy, if Yahweh is shooting the arrows and destroying the walls, there's no one possible who can stop him and who can then restore you to life. This, it's all over. It says Yahweh has done what he has planned. You know, we, Yahweh, back, we've, we've already read it, that he said that, well, this thing, these things will happen. They're, they're the necessary punishment for breaking the covenant. But the, the <laughs> I, I think what God is really getting across to his people in this very real way is that there are absolute consequences. God doesn't rule over his people for the purposes of his own um, ego, because he doesn't he doesn't operate like that. He doesn't rule over people just so he can have control or or he wants to dictate our lives. He he gives us his law, his instruction, his, his priests, his sacrifices. He gives the people those things so that they can so they can live abundant lives. And now, as they reject what he's offered them for probably selfish human reasons, look at what happens. Verse eleven is very powerful. My eyes are spent with weeping. I mean, I, if you've ever been just so upset and you've cried and cried and cried and your eyes just, they're, they're, they hurt so much and you feel like there's not a, an ounce of liquid left in your, in your body to cry out. My stomach churns. It uses this very colorful, my bile is poured out. That's just talking about your liver, but sometimes it means your heart. But basically it's just internal uh, uh, churning of 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 just how awful all of this feels because yeah, almost like he's vomiting in the midst of his his grief it's turned yeah. him inside out oh it, that's now that's that's perfect language right inside out yeah whether he's literally throwing up on the ground which is also very possible but mm -hmm. but because infants and babies faint in the streets of the city um, I know the next verse is they cry to their mothers, but I can't help but think this word faint is a little stronger than just they're fainting. They're, they're dying in the streets. Is oh, what they are saying. dying. Yes, they are dying. How, how ironic that the, the mother Jerusalem is now watching her people die, even as the mothers in the city Jerusalem are watching their children die. The place which was to be life at the mother's breast has now become a place of death. There's no food left. The enemy is working its way through the streets, and God is overseeing all of this. As if the people had remembered Deuteronomy, they would have understood what was happening, but they refused. They refused to see. And, and this verse 14 is obviously one that, I guess, really lights up for me as I read it as a pastor but it really should be for anybody, and but especially those who are charged with, with caring for God's people. It, one of the reasons why, right after he asks the question, your ruin is vast as the sea, who can heal you? And the expected response is nobody. He says, your prophets have seen for you false and deceptive visions. They've not told you about your sins, right? They've not exposed your iniquity. They've not told you about your sins to restore your fortunes, that is to save you. But instead, they've seen for you oracles that are false and misleading. Uh, the leaders are, and we read, we've, we've encountered this as we've done other books in the Bible, but the leaders are held responsible, but not only so, because they're also the ones, the princes who are being let off. But at the same time, it also shows just how 
dire the consequences are for false leadership. Uh, these people don't know any better except that they learn from their leaders and priests who they trust. And when they're misled, they also face the consequences. So this is a, a very stark warning for those who've been given the privilege and responsibility of caring for God's word. Yes, rather than feeding the sheep, they have actually taken advantage of the sheep when they're cast down. It's a bit, a bit like a, a shepherd shearing the sheep when the sheep is in distress. Rather than feeding the sheep or putting the sheep upright, right. they've taken advantage. They know not what they do uh, intentionally in, in that instance. And uh, Jeremiah goes through the four possible realms, maybe, of, of help. Um, the prophets, those who pass by, the, the nations, the enemies around him, and then Yahweh himself. And no help is coming from any quarter. Yeah, let's let's look at that. So 15, well, we've already just said your prophets are, are basically feeding themselves, not feeding the sheep. And then verse 15, even the people who pass along the way, they they clap their hands at you, they hiss and they wag their hand heads. Uh, obviously, that language draws me back to uh, the Psalms and, and Jesus and the Lama Lama, Eli Eli Lama Sabachthani that you were talking about earlier, right? My God, my God, why have you mm-hmm. forsaken me? Jesus is hanging on the cross, and that's what's happening, right? People are hissing and they're wagging their heads um, as, as he sacrifices himself. But the enemies here in verse 15, or, or I guess those who pass along the way, they say, isn't this the city that was called the perfection of beauty and the joy of all the earth? So. Out in the world, and as you pointed out, these are the ones who are passing along. They're not even necessarily the enemies. They're just the people who, instead of looking now to Jerusalem and seeing the light of God, are just sort of mocking, mocking them for for the reaping the the what they've what they've sown. This it's this a goes bit like yeah. No, go ahead, no, please, um, please. It's a bit like the the passersby in Jerusalem as they see the crucified men outside of the city. There are passers-by, and they're mocking, oh, this happens to those kind of people. They're criminals. Let them die. Hiss, hiss. Gape, open the mouth, and stick out their tongues at them. And then you have the leaders, the enemies, who are saying, if you're really the Son of God, well, come down off the cross. That kind of mocking in verse 16. And Yeah, exactly, right? We've swallowed her. This is the day we've longed for. Mm-hmm. I, I think this is something that when we Christians experience persecution out in the world, there is, of course, rejoicing in the suffering that we face for Christ. Uh, being persecuted for righteousness sake is something that while we don't want, uh, we will endure and we should uh, rejoice in our sufferings for Christ. But sometimes you suffer for your being persecuted because of your sin. It's not always because people don't like you as a Christian. And I see this too. I see the enemies using this as an opportunity to attack these people of God by pointing out that, look, look, yeah, we've won. Your God was nothing, but the witness against God isn't, you know, God's doing, it's their unfaithfulness. So even as Christians, we, we need to make sure that if we're persecuted, that the persecution isn't just because we're not following God's will. Oh, yes. I, you know, Peter addresses that in 1 Peter 4. If you're suffering, don't suffer because you're a meddler right. or a thief, but rather because you're confessing who Christ is. And then commend yourself as you do good to the one who is able to save you, namely God. Yeah. Uh, you know, Paul speaks to Timothy in this similar way, going back to verse 14 a little bit, mm-hmm. that 
if you hold on to the pattern of sound doctrine, you'll save yourself and your hearers. So it's a good exhortation, as you noted, Pastor Boo, for pastors to hold fast to the word and teach the word in the fullness and the all the counsel of God. Not simply, of course, what the people want to hear, but what they need to hear, that strong call to repentance. And, and of course, we also have this knowledge, they do, that God is in control ultimately. And I think of, and this might be a little weird place to think, but I think of John 6 and the people are leaving Jesus. Um, you know, disciples are leaving him because, what? well, what he's telling them must happen. They don't want to follow. And then Jesus turns to his disciples and he says, you know, are you going to go away as well? Do you also want to go? And Peter speaking for them says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So we know that even in the midst of all persecution, we can always turn to God. In fact, we need to turn to God. Yet, verse 17, it's almost like they can't turn to God. Why? Because Yahweh has done this, what he purposed. He's carried out his word, which he commanded. He's thrown down without pity. He's made the enemy rejoice over you, exalted the might of your foes. So they're in such despair that even from their perspective, turning to the Lord doesn't feel like an option because this is all because of their sin against the Lord. Yet we have to remember Peter's confession, right? We can't go anywhere else. Yes. I mean, I would, not to backtrack too much, but I would return to what I said earlier regarding an anti-benediction. Though the Lord curse you in order to destroy you. That's sort of what's happening here. They have, they have made God their enemy by disbelief, by rebellion, by inviting into the temple all sorts of occultish practices and abominations. And that's the consequence. You tear down the walls and death will come in. If you have not, if God, if Yahweh is not your protector, then there is no protector. There is no one who is strong enough to keep away the forces of demonic powers and chaos and everything that destroys what is good and right. And Israel finds this out, and now we see it as a testimony. If judgment be, uh, judgment begins with the household of God, so we must be quite wary of our own faithfulness, our own practices. We are children of light, a city set on a hill. And if Jerusalem was extinguished, there's a, a warning then for every generation of Christians. Well, there really is. And, and you know, we talk about all those that are set against us, and you mentioned this too. For them, it's their prophets and, and, and princes it's those who pass along the way. It's their enemies. And in verse 17, they're like, okay, well, and the Lord's the one who's done this. But you got to love 18 because then it says, despite knowing all of this, despite knowing that he's the one who's thrown down, he's the one who's made the enemy rejoice over you. What does it say? Their heart cried out to the Lord. And, and what's the response? Let tears stream down like a torrent. Give yourself no rest. Your eyes, no respite or respite. So, so the answer is you need to lament. You need to feel bad for your sins. You need to have contrition. You know, repentance is the most important, right? Doing that 180, not walking in that way anymore. But feeling bad for your sins is an appropriate response. And, and, and I feel like in the world today, even the churches and, and the prophets and pastors out there now, they, they desperately want to avoid people feeling bad for their sins because, well, nobody likes to feel bad. But here, the, the answer is, Return with weeping and gnashing of teeth. Actually feel bad for your what you've been doing. 
Yeah, I I will have a an alternative to that reading of verses 18 and 19. Oh, please. please I, go I understand that it's possible that this is an exhortation to pray, but maybe it's an ongoing taunt out of verses, uh, out of the prior verses. Cry out. Mm. What's going to happen? Because the the depth of destruction has not reached its peak until you get to the end of the chapter. So, I, I'm not quite sure that this is a respite, a plateau, a wayside of let's cry out to God, or if this is a mocking tone, as I suggested from the leaders in Jerusalem as they mocked Jesus. Oh, I think that's, yeah, that is definitely something to to chew on. Um, yeah, no, I love that. I love that. I'm going to have to reflect on that for sure, because that obviously makes perfect sense, too, as we see the people mocking them, you know, let's go on to, or, or actually before we move on, because I want to see how that resolves. Um, anything else about this section though, you want to make sure people know, but that's, that's really good. I'm gonna have to write that down. Uh, I think we've covered all, I think we should press on to the last several verses. All right, let's do it then. So now we're going to look at the last three verses, 20 through 22. Let's see how it's resolved. Look, O Yahweh and see with whom have you dealt thus? Should women eat the fruit of their womb, the children of their tender care? Should priest and prophet be killed in the sanctuary of the Lord? In the dust of the streets lie the young and the old. My young women and my young men have fallen by the sword. You have killed them in the day of your anger, slaughtering without pity. You summoned as if to a festival day my terrors on every side. And on the day of the anger of Yahweh, no one escaped or survived. Those whom I held and raised, my enemy destroyed. So for me, in the way I was approaching 18, is their heart cried out to the Lord, and then now all the way through the end, it's describing what they're crying out to. Um, I understand your point of view too. In, in fact, I'm, I, I, I like it a lot. In fact, it's something I'm going to contemplate. Um, but if that's the case, then kind of where does the turn happen then? Is it with look, O Lord, and see? Uh, turn, meaning, I think that when Jeremiah voices Israel's or Jerusalem's distress, he's saying, okay, you're, the enemies have had the say, and this is the depth in, uh, this is the, the bottom of the well. Look where you've put us. Not only has Jerusalem been destroyed, not only are the people suffering in this way, your enemies are mocking what you have done. They are, they are laughing at us. They, we might say they are, uh, it's an anti-second commandment. They're mocking the prayer, the repentance of God's people. And so look what you've done, Yahweh. Is this really what you want to happen? It's, it reminds me of Moses after uh, the golden calf incident in the wilderness. Do you want to destroy your people this way? This is your reputation at stake. So I think that's, from my perspective, what's happening in these last few verses. It kind of reminds me a little bit, and we see this in um, other places, the Psalms for sure, and kind of relates to back to my talk about, well, you know, it's, it's okay to be mad at God. Um, you, you see these pleas like, well, Lord, if I die, 
who can praise you from the ground, right? Who praises you from Sheol? Who can do Uh your work? Uh, It's, it's speaking to God in a way that might seem to the outsider to be kind of offensive to say, look, oh, Yahweh, look what you've done. Do you really want women to eat their own children? I mean, make no mistake, folks, they're talking about cannibalism Cannibalism because of the shortage of food. So, so they're looking at God and basically questioning if, if we read it this way, and I don't see any reason why we shouldn't, they're questioning God's justice and judgment, but not in a way that's accusatory, in my opinion, but in a way that's wrestling with the thought. How can God allow such things to happen? We know that the answer is our sin and our rebellion, but it takes us, I think, a while to get there. Do you, do you see it that way, or is, is there another way to look at it? No, I think that's the great, great tension as to why the Book of Lamentations, in fact, has been preserved. That with the promise, and God doesn't change, his gospel is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but yet you have this event which causes that to be turned on its head. That is, has God actually vacated his promise, or is it standing? And to wrestle with that, to wrestle and hold on to the word in spite of everything that has happened. I think that's where Jeremiah wants to lead us with these last verses. Otherwise, we can't get to Lamentations, the middle of chapter 3. I think you have to get to this point of absolute death, of condemnation, before there's the possibility of being revived, restored, resurrected, and seated, recreated. In Revelation 21 and 22, you can't get Revelation 21 and 22 until you have this kind of death. Uh, it's very reminiscent. I mean, Jeremiah makes a very good uh, law gospel Lutheran pastor, doesn't he? Preacher, anyway. <laughs> yeah, we follow in his footsteps. Right? <laughs> of course, of course. So, uh, well, we're here at the end of the show, and I've really enjoyed the conversation. Any, any last thoughts, though? Um, I'm sure there are a ton, but just maybe the last couple that you want the people to leave with. I think that Romans chapter 8, 31 through 39, are probably the key for us as looking back upon this. If God has given us a son, will he not also give us all good things? And then Paul asks the series of rhetorical questions. We know the answer, that God has done these things, and that therefore nothing, whatever powers, whatever famine, whatever sword, Whatever angelic forces there might be, nothing will ever separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus. And the resurrection will demonstrate that. And that's the hope that his people have with the seal of the Holy Spirit. I think that's a great word to end on, folks. You know, we need not fear God's wrath because his wrath has been meted out in Jesus And so, you know, there's nothing that can separate us from the love that God has for us in Christ. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Stuart Crown. He's the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Palo Alto, California. Pastor, thanks so much for being on the show again. I look forward to talking to you in the future. And God's peace to you and the saints. Folks, tomorrow we move into Lamentations 3 with Dr. James Bannock. Lamentations 3 is another deeply personal and poignant narrative set against the backdrop of Jerusalem's destruction. It contrasts very starkly with the other chapters by focusing on individual suffering and endurance. The, Jeremiah talks about personal afflictions, and it symbolizes the experience of God's wrath. 
Yet, as our guest already noted, amidst this despair, the chapter will shift to themes of hope and faith and and highlight God's enduring mercies and faithfulness. So that and a lot more when we gather around God's word tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray. Father, keep us in thy strong word. Thank you.